Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 86, Jamie Lannister and a Storm of Swords, Chapter 7. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Liza Narber on Twitter or LizaNarberGold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit on the Maester Monthly Podcast. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric on Twitter. Hello, hello, gang. How are we doing? I hope everyone is well. We are back with another exciting, thrilling chapter where Jamie finally returns to King's Landing. Yeah, turns out that happens now. Yeah, I actually, I'm really excited for next episode. I'm excited for this episode. Don't don't let me write it off yet, but I really like the next episode. It's one of my uh, favorite chapters. Interesting. Mm-hmm, 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 I all of them are bangers, like, so far. I think the next one gets overlooked because it's, like, I think it's a lot of info dump of, like, oh, this is what's happening, and these things are going on, and Jamie has to do this, but I just feel like everything it leads to is so good, and it's just such a full chapter. So we'll have a good time next week, but this week we have a lot to talk about. Yes, so beyond just our Jamie read-through, there's a lot of other great stuff going on in the Aswaf community right now, in case, you know, you needed things to listen to during this time of isolation. Yes, our friends over at History of Westeros have been doing Valar Reredus. All men and women must read, right? Yes. Yes. And Jeff, actually, from Nauticast, I think, was just on a History of Westeros episode talking about Barristan. Yeah, and also, another one of our friends, Joe Buckley from Isle of Faces, if you'll all remember, has a great Scraps and Scrolls series that he's doing, and he talks about things that didn't actually make it into the Valor Ruridus from the notes, because as you all know, uh, Joe Buckley has been a longtime collaborator yeah. and at uh, History of Westeros. I think it's so funny that he, like, Acts like we were around before. I was listening to and reading Joe Buckley's content, like even before I started making content, like even before I started writing things. I'm like Joe, trying to understand a chapter, looking for like a quick summary. Joe Buckley wrote the Tower of the Hand summary that I probably read exactly, and I'm like I don't understand. Yeah, it cracks me up, but he is great. We have to get him on in a while. We have to talk about that. We'll talk about that offline, but. Uh, he also has a fun series. I think I'm going to be on it, actually, uh, like <laughs> next month or something. But he's doing like this quizzo thing. Oh, my God. It's very funny. He's doing this quizzo thing where someone guess you guess which point of view has the opening chapter line that he reads. So, like, you'd read, like, his hand burned. And I'd be like, oh, that's uh, this is it's a Jamie chapter, you know. But I think I'm coming on for Feast. So we'll see. How good I do. I think we're going to have a lot of laughter, which uh, Joe Buckley and I do together. Lots of laughter. (laughs) Yes. And another thing that you actually were on recently, this past Saturday, was a Quarren stream on Joe Magician's YouTube channel. Yes, we talked about House Dane. It was very exciting. I had a blast, actually. We did have fun. We actually... uh, I think I moved him on some of my feelings of House Dane, and he moved me on some of his kind of uh, canons and thoughts, if you will. So it was a blast. You could check that out over on his YouTube channel at The Joe Magician. Uh, The Professor Dr. Joe Magician, as I call him. And weekend before that, he had our friend Poor Quentin at Booth from Not A Cast On to discuss Euron. 
So I'm excited to see what he has in store for us this week. I think he's doing one. uh, This is for public. It's Friday. So tomorrow, Saturday, he'll be doing another stream. Yes. And yeah, that topic is TBD. Um, But also another thing, uh, Joe Magician and I, aka Matt, as you all know, have a podcast called Maester Monthly uh, with some of the other mods of the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. And as usual, we were joined by Michael, aka Bookshelf Stud, on Maester Monthly. And that's still impending. We had technical difficulties and uh, I am working through them. Lots of... Yeah, lots of sweat, lots of tears, mostly on my end. Um, Everybody (laughs) That's how I fucking feel. Uh, It was, like, good. It was a good episode, but technical difficulties. And that's just how life is sometimes. Man, sometimes you record the podcast and sometimes it records you, you know? Actually, though, that's actually kind of what... It it would be better (laughs) if it recorded me. That would Uh. actually make my life easier if it did that. (laughs) Radio Westeros just put out an episode on chat, which kind of sounds crazy, but they actually made some really interesting points, so I really think you guys should check it out. Uh, And there's a new podcast. I'm very excited about this one. The Learned Hands podcast. Proud patrons and buddies of ours, Mary and Clint. They started this. They are two real-world attorneys who explore legal and ethical dilemmas in A Song of Ice and Fire. And they are the official podcast of the Westerosi Bar Association. I consider myself lucky to know them, for sure. Yeah. I'm ever in <laughs> trouble, they're going to be my lawyer. Yeah. yeah. Just in case but- you get caught with sour leaf on you, you know, and Masha Hell's not around to plant it on. Exactly. Uh, but only in dead. Westeros, you know. Um. <laughs> Cast is doing live streams every Monday, by the way. And you guys should check those out. Uh, they are happening at 8.30 p.m. And then lastly, our friend Gray Area is interestingly doing something a little different, seems fun, and is making Tiger King content. I've been hearing from a lot of people that Tiger King is wild, and they're like, wow, it's like Game of Thrones, but not? Sounds wild. You're going to watch it, and then you're going to tell me about it, and I'm not going to watch it. That's what we're going to do. Yes. Uh, Eventually, yeah, some of my friends and I are planning on doing like some sort of as you all know, maybe you've checked it out. There's a Netflix party attachment or extension that you can use now where you can like watch something at the same time on mm-hmm. Netflix with some of your friends and like chat. Yes, so. that's smart. That would be fun. But I was just thinking about doing that with some buddies. So maybe not that, but I'll leave that to you. There are entirely. other shows. Gray Area just put out another video that's like, what you should be watching right now. Other things on TV to get you through the uh isolation so maybe i'll watch that and figure out some stuff grace always got really good recommendations of other media and shows yeah absolutely so along with that some other things that are going on things that people have sent us we have emails and tweets of note first i want to say quickly chloe you were right it was brian of farce and we have been corrected <laughs> by Jimmy. It was Brian Farce who said, uh, who called out that line a few weeks ago, and I want to give that credit where it's due. And in the meantime, we have this email from our friend Pete, who says, Hi, girls. Last episode, you had mentioned in Jamie's dream section that Sir Jamie does fear the dead Lord Eddard. 
But I disagree, Jamie has always looked up to the finest swordsman in the realm, Sir Arthur Dane, as well as the deadliest of the Seven Knights, allegedly killed in single combat with Lord Eddard Stark. Sure, Jamie can come to reason that a momentary flash of sunlight of a blade could have dazzled a loose rock underfoot, or a twisted ankle could have been the real doom of his boyhood hero to the savage Northman Lord Stark. It's so unsettling to Jamie because Ned does not participate in tourney, so he can't see him move and strike, so it makes no real scene of how it was that Ned walked away and Arthur did not. Jamie's dream fear is kind of like the universal dream of, you're back in the old high school and you're underdressed and mm-hmm. haven't studied for the big exam. Actually, literally, though, that is literally Jamie's dream. He's naked, yes. Only to wake up and tell ourselves, I've been out of high school for years, Ned, and the corollary to that is Ned is dead. Hmm. Thanks, Pete, for sending us an email. It actually, it's funny you say that because it does remind me, my mom, like one time she saw her nemesis, you know, from high school. And of course, the nemesis did not age as well as uh, they had been in young life, right? It was like the cheerleader was not as cheerleady anymore, you know, the kind of cliche thing. And she was just like astounded. And I wonder if that's how Jamie feels, but like about Ned being dead, you know, like, wow, and now you're dead. I think so, just a little, because that was something that he could nurse. And mm-hmm, that grievance, sort of roll yeah. Over. I mean, yeah. And I, I don't think that he's not afraid of him. I just really, maybe it's just hard for me to contemplate it, I guess, when you frame it that way against he killed Arthur Dane. Yeah, sure, he could be afraid of him physically, but... I think it's a good point and argument that Pete makes, but as as you said, like what we see from Jamie's psychology is he's more afraid of Ned's judgment than anything else, because Ned has sort of become a stand-in for the judgment that all the rest of the realm layers upon him. I feel like Nauticast just covered this in uh, their Catalan episode this week about how Catalan kind of projects herself, and many of the characters project themselves into those different members of the Seven, and it feels like Jamie, when he thinks of the father... What face do you think he sees next to his father's? Like, he probably sees Ned's as well. Mm, I think the only thing Jamie's ever excelled at is swordplay, is, you know, fighting and being a deadly warrior or whatever. I mean, that's what he's good at, as we've learned, that his sword hand was everything to him. If there's one thing he could beat Ned at, it was physically he could beat him with a sword. Not mentally, not like in good graces or in being a good person, obviously. He could never live up to that of Eddard Stark, but he could at least beat him with his sword. There's a crazy thought I'm going to have right now. Did it? Doesn't Jamie throw at Catelyn's face... Or throw back at Catelyn. I don't remember the line explicitly that about Eddard having a bastard. Yeah, much like Cersei does in uh, Game of Thrones to Ned with Ashara. Right. So I'm just kind of wondering that, like, that's me. Is that part of Jamie's motivation, other than you know, his very fucked up relationship with Cersei? Is that part of Jamie's motivation for being so loyal to Cersei? Is he, is he like, I got this on Eddard Stark. I uh, am loyal <laughs> to uh, my sister lover. <laughs> Yeah, I could see it. I mean, I think uh, I think he was traumatized know. in a way of that, like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's Crazy something to thought. think about, though. Pete, you gave us yeah. lots to chew over, and we really appreciate it. We'll talk to you very soon. Thanks for the email. We also got an email from our friend Warren. Speaking of buddies that sent us some mail, and uh, Warren wanted to talk about Jamie's arc and how people, not me, 
he says, not Chloe. Thank you, Warren. I see you. I see you. Uh, how Jamie's arc is a redemption arc, some people think, but really he thinks he's just realizing what he's done has been pretty shitty and he could be better. And that reading him when he's trying to be better, like with Brienne, obviously, it's uplifting to see someone so derided rise up and determine he can and will be better. And Jamie rescuing Brienne is a great example of this. But Warren says George isn't telling a black and white story. Jamie's flaws are present, but what was perceived as arrogance is tinged with a sense of sincerity, finally. Jamie gets iconic lines, that's no accident, this week's gem, last week's gem now, being his response when Brienne asks, why did you come back? And he quips, I dreamed of you. But we know he did dream, and while he's being a smartass, he actually means it. I often wonder as a writer what kind of things George finds challenging, and I know he's talked in some areas of struggling, like with Bran and magic, but when I read some of Jamie's lines, I'm full of admiration for how he clearly loves these characters, but can be detached enough to have them commit heinous acts like Jamie and Bran or Sandor and Micah and deliver iconic lines. There are no men like me, only me. George typing that, sitting and looking at various alternatives before settling on that alone is an incredibly arrogant and ballsy statement, and I think as a writer it takes courage to leave it and not water it down. I dreamed of you is another example, and in this light she could be a beauty. A quote Jeff read on the History of Westeros Barristan episode, ah, regarding Jamie rings here too. Did I soil the white cloak, or did it soil me? Fundamentally, Jamie's still the same person, responding in the same ways, but his motivations change because he's touched and even inspired by Brienne and her honor rather than Cersei and her. I'll let you fill in the blanks, and we will today in this episode, for sure. George is exploring similar themes with Sandor in a way, like Jamie has done terrible things and he's been callous about it, yet inside there's a deep and sincere sorrow, I'd guess in both instances, if the arcs aren't redemptive, they might be atoning. I agree, Warren. However, I would like to add that Jamie is the royalty here, or the uh, the lord here, and Sandor was the help. Anyways, moving past that, thank you, Warren. Great email. Yeah, I like the call out of exploring similar themes with Sandor. I've always thought that there are a lot of similar ones with Theon, especially because mm-hmm. both Theon and Jamie owe Bran something mm. quite big. And we'll obviously see that in, well, actually, no, that's not obvious, but we will probably see that in later books. I mean, Theon <laughs> is hearing Bran in the trees, and obviously Bran is still, like, that's that's one of those Chekhov's guns that hasn't gone off yet, right? Bran trying to remember, mm-hmm. like, wait, what the fuck happened to me again? <laughs> yeah, and I think there's going to be some really big trial-esque moments, whether it's an actual trial or whether it's, like, things like that. Like, look at Sansa with her memory and with Littlefinger. Uh, and realizing, hey, wait a second, you betrayed my dad, ha ha ha, and my mom, ha ha ha. Things like that, I think the Stark kids are going to have to have some realization soon, and Bran, thankfully, mm-hmm. has a little bit of a, you know, achievement award going on there, because he has trees, so. <laughs> he has trees. <laughs> Bran can be like, www. <laughs> Last year, at this time. Yeah, the search tools. Please narrow yeah. down my search. To this time period. <laughs> but, you know, what did happen in the time period between the last Jamie chapter and this Jamie chapter? <sighs> so That was much. a good one. That, that was, was a good one this time. It, it would have been good if you didn't say it was good. I mean. So, this is <laughs> a very big lightning <laughs> round. It is like a rainstorm. It's like a tropical thunderstorm of a lightning round, truly. Uh, we started off with Catalan 5. Rob writes his will, whether Catalan likes it or not. 
Yes. Sam all three. Sam must put down one of his reanimated brothers. And Cold Hands comes to his rescue. Arya 9. Sandor reveals his whole life is consumed in achieving vengeance against his brother, and also that he's going to ransom Arya and then try to join the wolves to fight. John 6. John reaches Molestown in time to warn everyone of the Free Folk's approach, arriving to Castle Black to learn that his brothers are dead. Ish. Mm. Ish. Ish. Catelyn 6. Grey Wind's howls should have warned them away from the twins, but yet they continued on. Arya 10. Arya and Sandor arrive at the twins for a wonderful, if not cheap, wedding, but great wedding by Dothraki standards. Uh, honestly, a fucking killer wedding by their standards. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <sighs> ah, people were dying to get in. So, Catelyn 7, Jamie Lannister sends his regards. Arya 11. It's too late for Arya to save her family, so Sandor must save her. Tyrion 6. Tywin reveals his motivations and the wolf up his sleeve. Davos 5. Melisandre's leech work proves, sort of, effective. This is like one of those like those small texts written, like read very quickly during a commercial. Davos thinks a path for Stannis' glory lies in going north. John 7. Literally, I just want you guys to know that for John 7, the lightning round this week is Say Something by A Great Big World, the song. That's all. <laughs> Bran 4. A brother of the Night's Watch guides Bran and his group to the Black Gate, allowing him passage beyond. Daenerys 5. Belos is sent in an attempt to weaken Marine. Traitors fill the court of Queen Daenerys, and she sends them away in disgust and heartache. Tyrion 7. Tyrion finds no comfort in his grieving wife and turns to his paramour, who he knows he cannot keep. He devises a way to protect Shay. Sansa 4. Sansa has to suffer at a ton of public events after her entire family was basically publicly butchered and- Dude, it just sucks. Don't read this book. (laughs) Zero out of ten. Would not recommend. Tyrion 8. That was pretty good. Thank you. I give that like a 10 out of 10, actually. Wow, amazing. So now we're at a 5 out of 10 average on this book. <laughs> All right, you guys, I'm bringing it up. <laughs> Sansa 5. Sansa's whisked away to safety by this very unemployed man with very ugly facial hair and weird minty breath. And that brings us to Jamie 7. Jamie's glorious return to King's Landing, to his golden sister and his lordly father, who shits gold, is harshed. By the death of his not a son? (laughs) The king is dead, they told him, never knowing that Joffrey was his son as well as his sovereign. It was Tyrion. He drank his blood. It was poison. His face turned black. The dwarf's wife did the murder thing, too. I mean, kinda for those last two. Mm -hmm. The drinking of the blood? No, but metal. We also have this line of, for Sansa, Afterward, she vanished from the hall in a puff of brimstone, and a ghostly direwolf was seen prowling the Red Keep, blood dripping from his jaws. Okay, that is so amazing and metal, though. Like, I know this is most likely a cloud of sulfur, 
as far as brimstone goes, but I imagine mm-hmm. it's brimstone butterflies, like huge yellow mm-hmm. butterflies, very like erupting around her. But of course, this language is in line with how Sansa is talked about on the road from other places, right? Sandor hears about her on the road. I forgot you've been hiding under a rock. The northern girl, Winterfell's daughter. We heard she killed the king with a spell and afterward changed into a wolf with the big leather wings like a bat and flew out a tower window. But she left the dwarf behind and Cersei means to have his head. Interestingly enough, she is described very much so bat-like or like I said, brimstone butterflies, especially when you consider the color yellow and with Jamie having chosen a uh, Lothstin shield which does have yellow on it like we talked about last episode and the black bat sansa is really really very much so getting into that house went kind of imagery lost in imagery that comes from her mother's side of the family so very interesting and it also relates to how rob is described in battle in a clash of kings right using some vile sorcery your brother fell upon sir stafford lannister with an army of wargs not three days ride from lannisport yeah, absolutely. There's a lot there that, as you said, harkens to, I mean, a, a lot of the ways that these legends start to make them like, look, Sansa, you made it. You're in a story. You're in a legend. <laughs> it's right. pretty badass portrayal, too. Well, it doesn't take too long from what we hear to be made into a song, right? Arya hears songs that are likely about uh, Ashara Dane dying in A Storm of Swords, right? And she's performing in plays about mm-hmm. Sansa. Yeah, I love that. I love how it spreads throughout Westeros. To Essos. I do like how this is introduced. I think the language, uh, Jamie chapters are just really strong, how they start usually. And the framework is great here because it's eight, it's what, like 18 chapters between Jamie 6 and Jamie 7. Much like Sansa has a large gap between her chapters in A Game of Thrones after the Trident to give the reader a different perspective of the character and keep the ambiguity, our big cut here was from Jamie saving Brienne, leaving us, you know, kind of just <gasps> jaw dropped to now Jamie Lannister sends his regards. And here we are back on the road with Jamie and Brienne coming into King's Landing. And it frames the characters in these two kind of comparisons as a villain or uncaring or unmoved by something big and traumatic that happened. For Sansa, we come back to her living her best fucking life after that, right? Like she's going to go to the tourney and everything's going to be magical. And all of that that happened was all everybody else's fault. And I'm a kid, so I'm not going to pay attention and blah, 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 blocked it out because traumatic. And for Jamie and Brienne, it's kind of more of this reaction and reveal. Jamie is being painted as the villain in this light after we've had a handful of chapters and he's been out of sight, out of mind, and everyone's dead. But he really wasn't fully a villain here, which we're going to chat about later again, much like Sansa, as we learned, wasn't really a villain with the lady situation. In Jamie 5, we start the chapter with his hand burned, something that framed not only Jamie's hand hurting from being obviously chopped off, but Aerys burning his hand of the king, which mm. Jamie then reminisces about in that chapter. In similar fashion, this chapter, two chapters later for Jamie, starts off with the king is dead, they told him, but this time the king that's dead is his son and not Aerys. Yeah, those are some fantastic parallels that are being drawn there and like the double entendres of how it's being played with. Uh, how Jamie's like reliving in a way a lot of these things again, just in a different context mm-hmm. with the the wording. 
Um, and yeah, we don't really get that much of what happened while on the road. It's storytelling. We're just kind of, of course, seeing the parts that are important for Jamie's character and story. And as I'm rereading this as just Jamie chapters, yes, 20 chapters or something happened between this and the last one, but it kind of really throws into the foreground something interesting about the timing, which we're going to get back to in a bit. Also, I have a tinfoil just now. The ghostly mm. direwolf seen prowling the Red Keep. We know that Sansa keeps waking up and seeing Lady right in the corner of the room. A thought. Whoa. A thought. What if she's uh, warging Lady's ghost? Well, I, I wasn't going that far. I just thought that maybe Lady's ghost was haunting the Red Keep, but you know, let's let's take it a step further. Why not? We I'm out just here. saying. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Why not? No one recognizes <laughs> Jamie at the end on the roadside. Why not? So they all spill the tea freely. They're like, why not? Why not gossip in front of Jamie Lannister? And he I don't know to- her. <laughs> That's basically what Jamie's saying right now. <laughs> he tries to think of Joffrey, but he can't. All he can see is Cersei in his mind. And he sees Cersei in mourning. Her hair is a mess, crying and fighting through the tears in, hmm. in his mind's eye. He thinks that she'll look to him for comfort and for revenge. Yeah, I mean, he knows his sister. If nothing else, there's that. Yeah, absolutely. It is kind of one of those things, though, now that we say it out loud, that I'm like, oh, that's how you see Cersei in your mind in mourning, her hair a mess, crying, fighting through the tears, like seeing her as this, you know, his idealized maiden in distress. Because that's yeah. what he does. He saves maidens. She's not a maiden. Yeah, that's what he's about to fucking yeah. learn. Um, that's true. They ride for the capital super hard the next day. Steel shanks as they get closer. He's like, wow, this stinks. And Jamie's like, yeah, it's smoke, sweat, and shit. You can smell the treachery, too, if you sniff real hard. And Steel shanks is like, White Harbor never smelled like this. And Jamie says White Harbor is to King's Landing as Tyrion is to Gregor. I wonder if that's going to have some sort of like bearing on... Jamie and Tyrion in the north or something. I thought that was interesting. Oh, I thought it was a comparison of kind of like people underestimating White Harbor, especially mm-hmm. as we see Lord Manderly start to become more of a maybe a player unless, you know, he's de- oh. dead. But he absolutely was a player, right? Yeah. Well, and I think here it's apt that he's showing the size comparison and we know Tyrion yeah. is a survivor so far in the series and Gregor is a half- a half survivor ish 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 is a great way to put it as nag leads them with a seven-tailed peace banner with the seven-pointed star on top jamie wonders if Tyrion could really have killed joffrey and he's pretty much in disbelief and then he's like why don't i feel anything about this i feel like nothing about this and then we have this Quote of, men were supposed to go mad with grief when their children died, he knew. They were supposed to tear their hair out by the roots to curse the gods and swear red vengeance. Yeah, and this is great, too, with the Oberyn comparison coming up about his sister and her children, right? With the mm. chapters to follow and Oberyn, um, <clears throat> to put it delicately, getting smashed. <laughs> delicately? Okay. Which it and- was not put. <laughs> <laughs> it was not. That is not... Oberyn's head, not handled delicately. And it's also literally what Catelyn actually does with oh, the yeah. tearing of the hair out, cursing gods, swearing red vengeance. And I think it's interesting that like Jamie thinks that this is what how men are supposed to react. And it, it reminds me again of what I've been saying of like Catelyn as the father as opposed to the mother in terms of the seven and that judgment. I like that a lot. <laughs> I'm glad you still like it two weeks I later. I do. I actually <laughs> told Nauticast about it. 
I was like, oh. you guys should talk about this with your cattle in chapter two, because we just talked about it. It's so interesting. <laughs> Me opening my trench coat. Y'all want to buy some takes? Uh, <laughs> he thinks about how Joffrey believed Robert was his father and how Cersei never let him near Joffrey. The boy had been a squalling pink thing who demanded too much of Cersei's time, Cersei's love, and Cersei's breasts. Robert was welcome to him. So uh, we're going to return to this quote in a bit in this chapter. There's like that weird envying thing, right? Where he's like envying his son's attention from his sister. But anyway, um, yeah, you know, Cersei gets a lot of blame for how Joffrey turned out. And of course, she shoulders quite a bit of it. But as we've discussed before, I think for all intents and purposes, right, Robert was Joffrey's father in the same way that we're going to find Ned was John's father and like who they tried to be, right? Who they wanted to be when they grew up, whose approval they were seeking. But interestingly, both Robert and Jamie probably see Joffrey slash their son the same way of like, uh, I don't know, that boy was that boy was off. But with Joffrey trying to be like Robert and doing all these crazy things to get his attention and his approval, it becomes this really great closed loop with this chapter specifically as we realize that Joffrey, even though he thought that the Baratheon was his father, has been trapped in the same familial tragedy that all of these Lannister kids, who are not kids, are now broken adults, have been with Tywin as they've just been trying to impress and squeeze love out of their father like for years. Yeah, the wheel goes round and round for sure, and it's very obvious in this chapter with the behavior you see between Jamie and Cersei, obviously, and then, of course, Jamie with Tywin and how Tywin treats him. But I do think a call out there is like, I think Robert's parentage of Joffrey is minimized very, very often. Like, I'm a strong advocate to talk about it, that it's so minimized. Like, George specifically makes it a point that the cat spa was sent by Joffrey because he was trying to emulate his quote-unquote father, which we know is Robert because Robert was heard in passing saying, put the kid down, you know, just be fucking done with it, man. And I think that, like, because the author intended us to find that was a big reveal, which we see later with, of course, Tyrion, or sorry, just a chapter ago when uh, Tyrion and Sansa were at the the brunch thing for Joffrey's wedding day, right? The present giving. Uh, mm-hmm. And he tears up the book and Joffrey's like, oh, maybe you should have had a Valyrian dagger. And he confirms it basically in that moment. Like, ah, it was Joffrey. He looked at me like that, that little punk. Like, I figured his ass out. Um, yeah. Which, obviously, this is all different time. We'll talk about it again, I'm sure, because we'll talk about it with Tyrion. But that's why, of course, Joffrey, when he dies, it's all like, you, like, it had to have been him because he literally made the threat about the dagger. That's all Joffrey knows to think about, right? Like, he doesn't fucking know who has it out for him, even though everyone does. So, I don't know. Uh, Joffrey was, like, putting a lion-shaped cube in a big, dumb, round hole, right? When it comes to Robert, like... Robert with Maya, you get that great passage where he talks about how, you know, she just laughed and laughed and he would throw her, in, or sorry, from Maya, you get that big passage about how, like, she just remembers being tossed in the air and laugh and laugh and laugh from Robert. And then you have Cersei, who's like, yeah, he loved all of his bastards, but he hated Joffrey. Every time he even touched Joffrey, Joffrey cried. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it's 
all that. And it's I think not like we they talked tried. about it in the Sansa's ch- in the Sansa chapters, but like Joffrey abusing Sansa was something that he learned from his dad because he was like, yes. "Oh, my dad hits my mom, so why not?" Is this is what I'm supposed to do, right? Like that was normalized for him, and now that I think about it, even the manner of his death, yes, absolutely. by wine, by wine, like wine played a big role in Robert's downfall. Literally, it one was of the, the biggest downfall. roles in Joffrey's death here, from his yeah. wife's family and his wife. Maybe we don't know yet about Margie's role. Cersei indirectly also her. But anyway. But yeah, I mean, like, that that's part of it, like, yes, of course, Joffrey, like Robert, also like Cersei. I mean, Jamie sees Joffrey, right, as an extension of Cersei when he's thinking of, what does Joffrey look like dead? He's not seeing Joffrey, he's seeing Cersei. And I mean, that's kind of what Cersei wanted Joffrey to be, but she found she couldn't control him. But she wanted her children to be an extension of her. And that's how she sees them. <sighs> Yeah, and that obviously, like you said, comes from the entire dynamic of the family. They're all fucked. They're a fucked up family. They all fuck and they're all fucked. So he rides back to Brienne on his horse, who's decked out in scavenged menswear and armor. He nags her about being quiet and covering her face. He says they're almost at King's Landing, and Brienne mostly kept her vow, but she insists there was another half, which was returning the girls, you know, that tiny part of the vow. It's <laughs> only only a small part. And Jamie's like, you know, it's really interesting how Brienne grieves way more for this king that she never met than I am for my own king, who's also my son. And he's like, oh, man, I remember when we learned about this happening. We were over at Brindlewood and we learned it from Sir Bertram Beesbury. And oh, the Beesburys are in this story, in the main story, apparently. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. I like the Beesburys. They're an interesting house. Vassals such as Lord Piper, though, apparently are heading to King's Landing to go pledge and surrender, especially because, you know, they, amongst many other houses, have family members that are being held hostage at the Twins and BD. Jamie explains to Brienne that, you know, there are, there are a lot of vassals who have envy towards their lords. For example, we Lannisters, we had the Reigns and the Tarbecks, the Tyrells, they got the Florence, the Tullys, they, they obviously, as you can now see, had the phrase. And, like, he's even like, you know, this, the Boltons and the Starks, they were part of that too. The Boltons used to just flay the Starks and rid them as cloaks. This is normal. Yeah, this is such a brilliant way for George to give that bigger overall reveal about how the Red Wedding played out because this time it's not to us we already know as readers that it's happened it's to brienne we're given a direct show of the people who've tried to rise up and what happens to them he notes the reigns and the tarbacks which of course we know what happened to them the reigns of castamere robert's match with Celise and stannis as a political marriage that we've talked about before in case the tyrells ever acted up rings true here and we also see axel florent rise in power from being a background character at the start of the series to the queen's side after his brother is burnt right and of course lastly we get to the tollies and the phrase and the boltons and the starks and this reference right here is so so obvious because the phrase have wanted nothing more than to usurp the tollies forever as we know and the tollies are now dead but for the blackfish who escaped and they have their claws on edmure and of course the starks used to be flayed by the boltons and worn as cloaks that's that's the giveaway yeah and obviously we've We've discussed this in some of the Theon chapters, but you see, like, those Bolton hints, especially because not everyone in the North is aware 
of their role at the Red Wedding. I mean, we are because we all saw it and we're there. Whatever. It wasn't exactly, like, planned in front of Brienne or Jamie, but, like, you could see those seeds start happening during that supper. But it's interesting that George actually said in 2000, there's a So Speak Martin, and we'll link it, that... Roos was still keeping his options open and was only just exploring and seeing, like, is this a viable option for me when Jamie was at supper and questioning him about it. And George actually says, in terms of, you know, the timeline, uh, as for Bolton, if you reread all his sections carefully, I think you will see a picture of a man keeping all his options open as long as he could, sniffing the wind, covering his tracks, ready to jump either way, even as late as his supper with Jamie at Harrenhal. Oh, yeah. And you can totally see that because, like, it reads more like this is Bolton kind of being like, hmm, so now that I have you here, since you stumbled into my arms, Kingslayer, it's interesting (laughs) you're here tonight having these dates and this wine with me. Do you think that your dad would be down to tango? Yeah, because I don't know. Looking for a wolf of a different coat, you know? A golden coat, maybe a lion, maybe, maybe. Like, it really is a feeling it out chapter. You can see him, and like it's like a dance. Jamie like steps forward, and Bolton kind of steps back a little. And then Bolton steps forward, and Jamie kind of steps back a little, until finally, at the end of the conversation, Jamie goes, I get it. Yes. Get me home, and my dad has your back. Yeah, and he didn't quite know that it meant, oh, killing a bunch of people at a wedding, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't, he know didn't know what know, was being planned. Yeah. And he didn't know that his words were going to be twisted like that. Man, if I were Jamie, I'd be like, God damn it. God damn it. Well, yeah, that's the whole thing. He's a Kingslayer <laughs> yeah, all over again. <laughs> I know. Yes. And he's like, God damn it. Why would you sully my bad name like this? <laughs> even my more bad so. Name. <laughs> Why would you sully it even more? But this, I want to be, I want to be responsible for the bad things I did do, you know, not the bad things I didn't do. Anyway. <laughs> Well, and while it was playing and parrying, like, yes, he didn't know this was what he was orchestrating, but he also knows that Bruce Bolton isn't a dude to fuck around with. And he says so right here, like saying, like, ah, you know, the Starks, the Boltons want to skin them for history and history and they used to and yeah, like, okay, we know you weren't planning like a princess party. Right. Like, what do you think was going to happen, Jamie? Like... Yes, once more, hated for killing a king, but not in the usual way. But it's like one of these, again, one of these uh, things, much like when we get to Feast, where Jamie's doing the best he can, quote unquote, with most things. But I think he thought it was going to be like a double cross thing, right? Like where the next thing you know, the Tyrells turn around all of a sudden. Wow, who are the Tyrells backing? And I think he thought it was going to be like that with the Boltons, not like, wow. Greatest Dothraki wedding of the century. Yeah, like maybe like Roose was going to marry someone off or, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Use his words. <laughs> Since hearing the news, Brienne has been listless. Uh, there's this line. The woman had dropped a rock on Robin Riger, battled a bear with a tourney sword, bitten off Fargo Hote's ear, and fought Jamie to exhaustion. But she was broken now. Done. Maybe she's just tired because honestly, yeah. like this is me around like this time every night. Yeah, I'm just saying, just if she does a lot more. They haven't even been in like hotels. Who knows what they've been doing? Yeah, I sleep <sighs> in a bed for sure. And like, I called it out though, just because I was like, oh yes, broken man, the broken <laughs> man speech. But uh, you know, 
Brienne, like you said, she's probably just tired because she finds strength later on. And I think there's an argument maybe that one can be unbroken? Like, de-brokenized, maybe? When one feels they have a purpose? As long as they believe, like, values still have meaning, as Brienne does. But that's later on in the story. He says he'll talk to his dad about sending Brienne back home to Tarth, or maybe give her a place at court if she wants to stay. She's naturally not thrilled at that concept, because what would she be? A companion to the queen? He thinks about her in a dress again, and what Cersei would think, and says, No, no, okay, fine, whatever, what about the City Watch? And she's like, nope, full of oathbreakers and murderers, and he's like, alright, peace. But then he thinks, then why did you ever bother putting on a sword? He might have said, but he bit back the words. Totally Jamie's worldview in a nutshell. Absolutely. Uh, he's still still getting over it. He is. Side note, I know that like the pack survives, but it's interesting that Brienne is very much just that lone wolf character. That's all. I think you're very on the on the wolf nose there. Yeah, and I know people have likened you know Duncan eggs stories to like lone wolf and cub, and clearly mm-hmm. Brienne and Potter are a version of that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I see her, I mean, yeah, uh, the bad show did a version of it, but I do see her as a kind of a Kingsguard-esque character. She's someone who takes her vows as a knight seriously, so I see her, John, Jamie, all of those kind of roles, right, of doing their duty in the story. So for her in the end, if she does become a Kingsguard member or if she does something, I think it makes sense for her to be on her own, especially if Jamie's not in the picture. I think this is, you know, it's this big chivalric romance, and they kind of are their big love. Mm-hmm. So I don't foresee them finding anyone else after each other ever. Yeah, this is, yeah, as you said. Duty is their wife. Duty and grave worms. Uh, you're reminding me of some of Ariohota's lines, but right now the gate of the gods is clogged with carts and wagons of really nice food and produce and drink. Different types of guards surround them. There are lords also, and farmer's boys, and swords. The gold cloaks are actually collecting coin at the point of entry from each of the wagon's drivers. And Steelshanks is like, Jamie, can you explain what the fuck is going on here? Because he's like, I don't understand. Uh, why are people paying for entry? And a nearby man explains it's because there's more money to be made in King's Landing under the Lannisters' silver reign. And Jamie's like, no, Tywin Lannister shits gold. And I just want to say that obviously Steelshanks has never been to an anime convention if he doesn't understand this. Because would you, Steelshanks, let me tell you, sometimes you pay lots of money so that you can go inside and spend even more money. <laughs> Welcome to capitalism, baby. We are the law. Uh, Jamie is like, actually, Littlefinger has to mint the stuff himself at this point. And the captain of the gate interrupts and he's like, um, actually, the imp is master of coin. Well, was until he killed the king and got arrested. Uh, Jamie is so out of place this entire chapter and him getting corrected here is so good because it's like, no, mm-hmm. Jamie, this is no longer where you live either. Yeah, actually, though, that really is like how many chapters also are there like Along with that, where Jamie just shows up places and gets caught up on the gossip. Like the next two to three. Yeah, it's like every chapter for Jamie. The, the guards, guards look over at the Northmen, asking who they are, and they say they've come to see the hand of the king. The guards assume they mean bend the knee and wave them through. 
Jamie notes the city does not seem to be in mourning, except for a begging brother in the street of seeds praying for the king's soul. Everything else seems to be normal. There are sex workers who are being jolly and hanging their titties out of the windows. Bakers are baking. Jugglers are spinning knives to entertain some Tyrell soldiers. Jamie finds no one is paying him any attention. They don't know who he is, for once. He's an outsider, like I said, and even... Here, the Tyrell soldiers are highlighted, and I think that's on purpose, that he literally says Tyrell soldiers are being entertained. Because if you close your eyes and imagine this scene for a second, you're entering a street that you once knew that you walked every day in this city, and yet, like, the Tyrell soldiers are in your city, acting normal, acting like they're just here to get a drink and hang out with the barkeep and you know, hit on the chicks over there, and this is what they do every day. Like, that's how long he's been gone. This is him coming home from battle. You know, I mean, a, a, he's a veteran here. He is. He, he's he got a completely different worldview than these Knights of Summer, as I'm sure that Jamie would think of them, or, or Catelyn would think of them, but it reminds me of something at the beginning of Ned's chapters, where he says to Robert, like, what the fuck happened, Robert? Why are you just surrounded by Lannisters? And that's essentially, like, I know Cersei's, like, paranoid about that in her chapters in Feast, but, I mean, she's not wrong. She's like, why am I surrounded by Tyrells? Yeah. It's definitely a change of environment and scenery, and it it's a huge change from the beginning of the book when it was Robert surrounded by the Lannisters, for sure. And it reminds me also of Sansa, looking around at the Tyrells and thinking they're all mm. foolish young girls in the same book in A Storm of Swords. They're just girls, you know, they know nothing about war or any of this. They'll grow up soon and they'll understand too. Yeah, she's, that's a kind of Jamie-esque way of looking at the world a little bit. Very that, jaded. She cynicism. Uh, has unfortunately grown that way for sure. Yeah. There's also another line that really embodies the uh, way things have changed for Jamie, and it's, your face has changed, and your arms as well, the Northmen said, and they have a new Kingslayer now. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> it reminds me of that line from line. The Bad Show when uh, Sansa says to Tyrion during the wedding ceremony for Marjorie and Joffrey, we have a new queen in eye rolls. <sighs> we uh, yeah. have a new Kingslayer. They head up to the Red Keep. The gate is open, but armed by gold cloaks, and Sir Marin commands the front. Jamie speaks up, and Marin is shocked that it's him. Jamie's like, it's nice to be remembered, please move, and they all obey immediately, and it pleases him immensely, having, having forgotten how much he liked it. It's another thing that's going to go nicely with the end of this chapter, and a couple of other things that happen, right? That feeling of power, of obedience, and, and Jamie and all the Landisters are so used to it. Yeah. They come upon two quote-unquote new Kingsguard members that Jamie doesn't know, and he thinks it's very like Cersei to name me Lord Commander and then appoint new colleagues for me. Great, thanks. Which is, of course, like why he refuses the hand job, finally, because he's like, wow. Interesting wording. Yep. Because finally he's like, hmm, wow, interesting. Like, wait a second, maybe this isn't what couples do that are happily in love. Also, maybe... <sighs> Couples that are happily in love aren't siblings. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that couples that are happily in love don't do that uh, Jamie and Cersei do. <laughs> I uh, do not recommend. Yeah, and and then 
oh, everything gets even better. Get ready. He meets Loris Terrell in case you want Jamie's day to get fucking better. And he feels just dirty in comparison to this fucking young twink in this beautiful silk. Like, Loris is just like, I have flowers in my hair and I'm gorgeous and strong and muscled like a maiden's fantasy. And Jamie's just like, what a waste of a knight. What a waste of a king's guard. He looks at him and he's like, you chump. When I was your age, I was ten king's guard in one. Even though, like, he killed the king. And everyone, I mean, Jamie was also same deal. Yeah. Like, like this- all these maidens fantasies. Literally, we spent last chapter finding out how many maidens he was the fantasy of. This is literally the Spider-Man meme. Like, I'm you. You're me. <laughs> Loris was knighted at 15. Beautiful sister who looks exactly like him. High expectations to boost the family's name. Kingsguard at 17. Secret lover. Golden Rose. His first scene with Loris is so interesting from the perspective of Jamie feeling unclean. Like Warren mentioned earlier, the Barristan quote, Did I spoil the cloak or did it spoil me? Fits here to where it builds when Jamie finally blows up on Loris in the next chapter and says, You know, older and wiser, sir, you should learn from me. Loris's role in Jamie's plot in King's Landing kind of feels like it's there for Jamie to get obsessed with, right? Like where Cersei has that beat of Marjorie in her head, that conniving little bitch stealing her son. Jamie has Loris. Look at us. We're better than you. We do this better than you. We're the golden roses with our plenty harvest, our Disney prince and princess songs. The people like our soldiers better, our queen better, our Kingsguard members better. And that brings out what he realizes that he and Cersei don't functionally have, right? Like, any functionality. They don't have any of it. Yeah, I'm also starting to wonder, is the another difference, is it like that Mace Tyrell actually likes his kids? Yeah, mostly. I mean, I still think there are some insane pressure and, like, requirements to be a Tyrell child, obviously, so I don't know if I would say that. I mean, he does seem to like them. That is the difference of, like, Olena preparing Marjorie for court instead of just, like, offering her up like cattle. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. We don't have any Tyrell POVs. It would be interesting if we did. Lord Tyrell could be an interesting POV. Hmm. Jamie tells Sir Marin, you know, you haven't done a great job of teaching these new brothers their duties. And Marin is like, uh, what do you mean, boss? And Jamie's like, keeping the king alive. <laughs> the, the one. Which is also like, this is the exact moment when one of your parents says to you, do I look like an idiot to you? Like, what do you do? Don't say anything about Eris, Mer- Marin. Do not talk about Eris right now. <laughs> like, Jamie's sitting here like, your job is to keep the king alive, and Marin's like, don't laugh, don't laugh, don't laugh, don't laugh. It's also the same line, right, that Cersei kind of throws at Barristan. Yeah. Jamie's throwing it around here, but yes, as you said, like, interesting interesting coming from the Kingslayer. Bill and Swan, though, finally notices the elephant in the room, and it's not Brienne, it's Jamie's missing hand. Jamie quips, like, oh, yeah, I'm just gonna fight with my left one now. NBD, inside his head, very BD, uh, asks where his father is, and he's in the solar with Lord Tyrell and Oberyn, and Jamie's like, that's weird. Very strange, and asks, okay, anyways, where can I find the queen? And they answer that she's in the sept, praying over the king. But then there's a huge dramatic moment, because Loris realizes that Brienne is there and he's like Gasp You are another Kingslayer. You wore the rainbow cloak, but you killed him 
And Brienne is all like, I did not. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. That's How's the sex actually, life, Loris? <laughs> that's actually Brienne's. Yes. That's not actually her line. But no, what she says is, I did not do that. Like, I loved him. I'd die for him. Please stop. And That is he, the same energy, though, as Johnny. Yeah, no, it's literally the same in energy. That line. Absolutely, as Tommy was out. But he asks if she's accusing Catelyn of doing it. And then he calls Catelyn an old woman, which is honestly really rude. This little tyke needs to respect his elders. Like, you are the LG on my river right now, Loris, and you're going to get fucking plucked. Leave Catelyn out of this. Brienne tries to explain it was a shadow and Stannis, and for obvious reasons, Loris does not buy it. He accuses her of having no honor, and he's like, fight me, mate. He bites his thumb at her, and Jamie steps in and tells Loris, yo, put your sword away. Also, Brienne can totally kick your ass. And Loris is like, this is of no concern to you, basically saying, you're not my boss. And Jamie's like, yes, I am the fucking Lord Commander. Balin Swan backs him up. Gold Cloaks are all like, oh, oh shit. And the Dreadfort men also get their swords out. And they're like, let's go, let's go. And then Loris is like, all right, all right, all right. Well, at least arrest her because I don't want her here. And then Jamie has this line of, for what it's worth, said Jamie, the wench does have honor more than I've seen from you, and it may even be she's telling it true. I'll grant you, she's not what you'd call clever, but even my horse could come up with a better lie if it was a lie she meant to tell. As you insist, however, Sir Balin, escort Lady Brienne to a tower cell and hold her there under guard? <sighs> this is like one of, again, Jamie's I'm doing the best I can in these circumstances choices, right? Like he does in Feast under the Lannister name as well. Stopping the bleeding, still causing a little pain. The best he can do in this situation is get her under guard in jail in a tower. But in the same motion, he also thinks earlier that he loves the power he feels when he commands the men. So it shows that kind of internal struggle for order that Jamie's finding in honoring his post and role as Lord Commander, as Lannister titles, and of course, how best to keep Brienne safe while deprioritizing her on this list of things and making the Lannisters and the Tyrells kind of the priority. Yeah, and also, like, Brienne's just so caught up in the honor of things that same as at Roose Bolton's, like, supper table. She doesn't really understand any of the politics that are at play here because all she sees is herself being arrested and she's just like, what? I've done nothing wrong. <laughs> and Jamie's like, yeah, I know. I'm just trying to appease the Tyrells right now uh, and keep you safe. And it's worth noting that he says take her to a tower cell, not, like, the dungeons below, not that shitty place where Ned Stark yeah. was thinking of this book series. Because it's a cushy-ass cell. Like, I never realized until now that, oh, we can just add Brienne to, like, the list of ladies trapped in towers, along with Sansa and Arianne. And, like, Arianne had a cushy-ass house arrest, okay? She was being served amazing food. Uh, except for the part where no one would talk to her and for extroverts like Arianne. Things like that. Things like quarantining. Bad. Bad. But especially because Brienne's... I mean, she's not really arrested. Jamie's just saying that in front of everyone, like, unlike Sansa and Arianne being kept. Yeah, and obviously, like, he rescued her in the last chapter, so hopefully she can use that. But at the same time, she also just, like, half-learned that he's part of the reason, probably, that the Starks are dead. So I can understand True. where she might just be a little, like... Okay, so is he just going to leave me here in a fucking tower at his family's house? Like, that's the other thing. This totally reads, like, 
you're going to go meet my family for the first time, by the way. And also, we're not actually dating. Like, and don't tell them we are. That's really how I my sister. the whole entire episode. Yeah, like, by the way, do not let my sister find out that I'm dating you because I'm actually dating her. And also don't let my father find out that I'm dating you because I'm actually dating her. And he doesn't know that I'm actually dating her either. Yes. And Slash it turns out the whole realm thinks I'm not dating anyone because I'm not supposed to. Yeah, also, on top of all that. Uh, you so remember really, the part where I just dating. emphasize I'm Lord Commander of the Kingsguard several times? <laughs> like, I'm supposed to be the most Kingsguardiest of them all. Of all of the seven, I'm supposed to be the one that does the most Kingsguarding. And I, Jamie Lannister, have done the least guarding of kings. <laughs> At the same time, yeah, and he's like, by the way, also put up these uh, Bolton men. Take care of these steel shanks, the railway cat, these other cats. Brienne is hurt, though, because Jamie didn't just have her arrested. And he's like, I barely had you arrested in his head. He's like, you should be blowing me kisses. He literally thinks she should be blowing me blowing kisses. Blowing what? He's like, kisses. Oh. Mm, yes. Why? What did you think, Chloe? Blowing what? Jamie <laughs> thinks everybody misunderstands him because of Aries. Interesting. Jamie, listen, it's not like I stabbed you in the back or something, Brienne. God. Yeah, at least, like, I, if I, he's like, if I'm going to stab you, it's going to be mostly in front. You'll see it coming. <laughs> Aries did. <laughs> I'm going to cry. The most king's guardiest of all of them. He's supposed to be the most king's guardian. He's <laughs> like, so... It's like he's like I don't know how I got this promotion. <laughs> I don't. I got. I was tricked into taking this job. <sighs> yeah, I, he's like I thought I was qualified for this job, and he was in fact qualified for this job. Except turns out he wasn't when he killed his king. Whatever. Complicated. It's a complicated job, apparently. Jamie tries to go into the sept, and a bouncer at the door tells Jamie it's VIP only. Cersei wants to mourn alone. Jamie's like, do you even fucking know who I am? And the bouncer's like, hey, let me give you a hand here, sir. Um, the bouncer's like, do you know who I am? I'm a Kingsguard cripple. And Jamie's he like, calls Jamie a cripple. fucking kidding me? I'm her brother. And he's like, why aren't you in prison? And Jamie's incredulous. And he's like, I'm her other brother. It's pretty obvious. I'm the real tall one. The guard <laughs> falls over himself and he's like oh i'm osmond kettleblack uh and jamie's like whatever loser get the fuck out i want to fuck and he gets in there cersei's praying hundreds of candles are lit to pray for joffrey and jamie's like damn joffrey needs every one of those because this bitch is dead yeah well not just dead he's just like man who knows where that boy is going in the afterlife <laughs> my god we all know sis we've been known we all know and I, I just really want to put this exchange in here. I'm going to cut it off a line early from what's actually in it, just for comedic effect for me. Anyways, his sister looked over her shoulder. Who? She said that. Jamie? She rose, her eyes brimming with tears. Is it truly you? She did not come to him, however. She has never come to me, he thought. She's always waited, letting me come to her. She gives, but I must ask. You should have come sooner, she murmured when he took her in his arms. Why couldn't you have come sooner to keep him safe, my boy? Our boy. I came as fast as I could, phrasing. He broke from the embrace and stepped back a pace. It's war out there, sister. 
You look so thin, and your hair, your golden hair. The hair will grow back. Ah, Jamie lifted his stump. She needs to see. This won't. Her eyes went wide. The Starks. No, this was Vargo Holt's work. The name meant nothing to her. Who? <laughs> Who? Uh, I never, uh, I didn't notice even, this is like the 80th time I've read this passage today, and I didn't think about the, the hair will grow back there. That Jamie yeah. says about his hair. I'm like, oh, that Lannister vibe, yo. Uh, mm-hmm. And hair grows back. So Cersei's growing paranoia and instant jump to the Starks here. I love it. And Jamie's perception against that. It's all very interesting how it's framed because we know Cersei sees them all as scheming. She sees everyone as scheming, to be honest. But True. she thinks that Sansa murdered Joffrey or helped, partially because she murdered her awful husband or helped, who half-assed raised the kid, but that's another one for the Cersei chapters. It's called, in a John Ralphio voice from Parks and Rec, projecting! And uh Cersei calls Sansa a she-wolf all the time, and Jamie's out there like, the Starks? Okay. Sure, it was them, Cersei. They could. How many Starks does it take to screw in a light bulb? They don't have enough alive. Also, they were dead. <laughs> yeah, like how could it have been them, Cersei? They're literally all dead, or you've like scared all of them. It's interesting because like Tywin actually does the exact same thing like in a second in this chapter when he's yeah. like the Starks. He's like, no, 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 no. And I mean, like, it seems like the whole projection thing, you know, maybe at the very least, that is one thing that Cersei did inherit from Tywin. Yeah, and also, real quick, it does, it does also feel like with that, like, really, you guys are really, like, I guess it's Rob's victories in the field, right? The fact that he was able to defeat them in the field is why they think this. But, like, most of those were really good, raw, young, like, war work there but also like the starks are just like falling over themselves right now they don't have enough starks to hold up a goddamn like ceiling well they were also holding their breath i guess the lannisters yeah. were holding their breath the whole time after joffrey was like you know what would be different <laughs> if i beheaded ned stark instead and they were all like oh 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 no oh no they have jamie like the whole time they've just been waiting for something like that to happen so maybe that's why they thought it too but i, I just love like she's like who uh coming back to that timing thing though where she's accusing jamie like why the fuck weren't you here and i might be wrong right but so seriously all like you could have protected joffrey which debatable i mean i'm not really sure how one uses a sword against poison you know questions that i have jamie doesn't know medicine but anyway if i'm not mistaken was jamie late because he doubled back to save Brienne. Like, we get, we get like, language that tells us it took this long, right? Like, Jamie asking, how long will it take if we just stop here? How long does it take us to go all the way back to Hall? And it tells us, like, when all that happens. Is Does he miss the wedding and thus his son's death uh, by going back to save Brienne? Like, is that was that the price for this act of heroism? Like, his son's life kind of, even though, again, I don't know how you fight against poison. Yes, absolutely it was, because Tywin later comments on it as well, that Jamie should have made it on time, according to what Lord Bolton said. Lord Bolton hit Tywin a quick eye message, and Tywin was like, on red. Uh, extremely telling, though, in his development, too, at what he seems to be feeling in this chapter, because, like, the breaks are starting. You can see them. The cracks are there. I'm just waiting to chisel those open. Oh, Absolutely. 
They look at Joffrey, who's dressed in gilded armor. Gilded armor that kind of creepily looks like Jamie's. Joffrey shimmers in the candlelight bravely. Cersei does as well. Cersei is wearing her morning dress. Shout out back to uh, Fashion Hour from what Eddard and Sansa. The black gown with the red Rhaegar ruby tears in the bodice. And her hair long and tangled, just like he imagined. Joffrey is dressed like Jaime, which ironically Cersei freaks out at Jaime soon about how he's not being careful to hide their relationship, but yet Joffrey's funeral garb that he's in is like chosen looking exactly like his biological father. Yeah, though I, in the defense of everyone else, you know, with the exception of the Targaryens, no one really jumps to the conclusion like, wow, the twins must have been fucking. Most people would be like, oh, yes, of course. The Lannister seat is strong, right? Right. Normal people. But anyway. Normal tells- people. <laughs> Ned, Ned is on that next level, like, shipping. <laughs> Cersei tells him that Tyrion finally did it. He wrote a check. His words could cash. He said that her joy would turn to ashes in her mouth. And Jamie's like, mm, really? I don't know. He doesn't want to believe that Tyrion would do that. Especially since he's like, but Tyrion knew that. Joffrey was my son. He thinks, I loved Tyrion. I was good to him. Well, except for that one time, but the imp did not know the truth of that. Or did he? Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, it's really creeping. Uh, Just reading Jamie's chapters, it's so interesting how you start to see, like, the Taisha reveal. Mm Mm-hmm. Mounting. Cersei clutches Jamie's good hand saying it was for Tyrion's sex worker, and that he had told her he was going to do it. She kisses Jaime's fingers and tells him that Joff pointed as Tyrion as he died, naming his murderer. She asks if Jaime will avenge Joffrey for her, but he pulls away. Yeah, you know, as Cersei tells Jaime that it would be so easy for him to just go murder his brother, it's so easy for you to just sneak in the cells. Everyone's going to let you in. You can just go and do it. I think that, you know, she's actually, in fact... Kind of planting the seeds for Jamie to be like, wait, yes, it would in fact be easy for me to sneak in and free my brother. Yeah, it's absolutely set up here. In fact, this entire passage is super fundamental for how that is set up because mm-hmm. he tells her, Tyrion's still my brother, and I only have one hand, so I really can't do all that. And he's like, I just want to learn more before I commit to it, obviously. And she says, oh, well, there's going to be a trial. And that's when you're going to hear all of it. And you'll want him dead as much as she does. And obviously, we know that the exact opposite occurs because Cersei orchestrates a fucking mummer's lineup to convict Tyrion by fucking and paying people off. And Jamie's disgusted eventually at all of that because of the hard truths that Tyrion does reveal, but also disgusted in general because it's obvious Right? That it's like a total mummer show. So everything here, she's like, you're going to believe it. He's doing the exact opposite. It makes him want to save Tyrion more, including being honest with him for the first time in his life about anything and everything, including Taisha. And it makes it so juicy. It's the first sign of pulling away from Cersei, and it's happening right now. The touching that Cersei is doing here is absolutely her tying her body to get him to do things for her. It's something we see Cersei prowess at doing. It's always paved her way to things before, whether it's giving or withholding her body. And each of these is connected to a request or to something that needs convincing, right? Like earlier, she's kissing him softly. She's touching his arm and saying, oh, Tyrion said this. Soon these touches 
turn gross for him, and he does not want them. This is a sign of a relationship breaking down between them, and Jamie and Cersei are more physically in tune with each other and themselves than they are emotionally, so the dam has already actually broken for Jamie, but he doesn't realize it yet. In fact, he doesn't realize it until when he's throwing letters in the fire, which as we know is going to be a totally badass episode, but it's already happening here, whether he knows it or not. Yeah, it's starting to, and that's absolutely true that like Cersei's doing this like as part of her request, starting to touch him, and she's like, oh, but what if you killed our brother? And yeah, Jamie isn't super conscious of it here because it doesn't come up like, oh, it's just like in X time, but it is. It's the same pattern as Cersei coming to Jamie dressed as a maid and being like, but what if you joined the King's Guard? And then plying him with sex. But it it this it, this is a weird scene how it all goes down here in the sept because you know, then she kisses him lightly and she says, I am not whole without you but when he returns her soft kiss, it isn't soft. His isn't. He kisses her hard and begins to kiss her neck and hold her. And Cersei says no. Like, at mm-hmm. first she says it, like, weakly, saying, not here, the Septons. And he just, like, kisses her silent and kisses her until she moans and is banging on the mother's altar. He, would you say here, as he puts her on top of that altar to uh, insert himself, that he is putting that pussy literally on a pedestal? Yeah, he's been doing it, like, this whole time. Most people just don't usually do it with their sisters, you know? We're never going to let it go this episode. My god. She's pounding on his chest, and Jamie remarks, like, in his head, this is a feeble pounding, murmuring about their father and getting caught and the wrath of the gods, because that's stopped them so many times and so well in the beginning, you know, the first three times she got pregnant with him. Uh, But Jamie gets on in there, and it turns out Cersei's on her period, and he's like, eh. Whatever. And he goes on in while she changes her tide slowly and then starts saying, hurry and quickly, do it now, do me. Jamie, yes, my brother, you're home. Yes, I have you, you're home. I don't know if you're uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. It's all very uncomfortable with how it started as a very reluctant, non-consensual experience. And Yeah, the whole thing's uncomfortable. And it's not even like the period part. No, I don't care like, about that. Yeah, that's like not... I don't know if George threw it in there because he thought it would make us uncomfortable. Like, that's not uncomfortable. Uh, because it, yeah, like, coming back to that earlier line where Joffrey thinks that, where Jamie was thinking about how Joffrey takes up too much of Cersei's time and, like, her breasts. And then we've discussed in Jamie's first chapter, he's upset about Cersei experiencing marital rape from Robert. But he's not upset about it because he's like, wow, my sister's being hurt by this. He's upset about it because he's jealous of Robert being able to have Cersei. And it's just kind of a similar energy to like the way Jamie feels about his son, I guess, taking up Cersei's time. It's very strange. And and I know people have had many discussions about this, like a few years back when the show adapted the scene and they didn't quite have that same ambiguity, right? But we are seeing it, of course, through Jamie's POV. And Cersei is saying no here at first. And yeah, she's pounding at his chest. He thinks it's feeble, but at the same time, like, it's not it's not the most consensual act. Like they'd have a horrible relationship and Jamie's just kind of blowing past anything that Cersei's saying. He's kind of just reenacting a lot of those same power dynamics that people exact on women. And it ties in well with, I guess, how Jamie was raised by Ty and like that inability to listen to that no, even from people they were supposed to love and maybe hurting them. And maybe that's why Cersei's saying yes quickly, because she's like, let's just get it over with, right? That's how she dealt with it with Robert. She's like, I'll just get it over with. And he was so drunk, I didn't even have to like 
I could just use my hands most of the time for stuff anyway, and Tywood reacts poorly to Jamie's several no's and refuses to acknowledge them when Jamie's like, mm, no, I'm not giving up the Kingsguard for Casterly Rock. It absolutely reads like she wanted to get it over with, especially because she tells him what he wants to hear in that. She says, you're home, you're finally home. And what did Jamie do this entire time but think, I just have to get home for Cersei, she's waiting for me, she's waiting for me, but we the people know Cersei has not been waiting for Jamie. You know, she's, that's nowhere near her thoughts. She's not, she's busy right now. She's doing shit. And here in this scene, however you want to skew it, whether you want to call it non-consensual or whether you want to say the sex was consensual, Cersei does not want to have sex with him. Her body language, like, at all. She does not want to have sex with him in this scene. It is neither here nor there. It is very yeah. apparent. The body language is reluctant. She is only touching him when she wants something, and it's hollow. The big kicker that comes up soon is when she shies away from his arm, the slip topping to it all. She didn't want him to start with. She saw something she wanted, just like Tywin sees what he wants with him in the end of the chapter, and does not get it. And there's no happy afterglow for either of them here because immediately she's like, get me up because they have to clean off the blood they smeared all over the altars. Yeah. The line goes, Jamie wiped it clean with his sleeve, then bent to pick up the candles he had knocked over. Fortunately, they had all gone out and they fell. If the sept had caught fire, I might never have noticed. Wow, speaking of I might never have noticed, I might never have noticed that line ever and I think it's because I blocked mm -hmm. it out because of the sex scene. Like, uh, most George R. Yeah. R. Martin sex scenes. But, like, if the sept had caught fire, I might never have noticed. I wonder, logistically, if we could have the Bad Show sept blow-up scene and King's Landing blow-up. I suppose we could see a parallel. I don't think we've seen happen yet. But we also get, like, I don't know, I've just been thinking, we get other things and other bits of maidens from the past books like Fire and Blood or The World of Ice and Fire. And it makes me wonder if the Sept doesn't blow up in the books and it is just one blow up and it's King's Landing, which I thought was more likely. I, I don't know, like, what's going to happen to Marjorie from all this stuff that keeps happening in uh, these Cersei chapters and Jaime chapters especially, and the Tyrell soldiers being there and all of this presence? Is Marjorie going to get a Shardane? Is she going to be the suicide of this generation? Oh, Interesting. Weird. She she has less of a role in the books than she did in the show, right? And during the dance, we're lightly told people like like Helena Targaryen and Jahera Targaryen kill themselves. They throw themselves off of the same exact room. Jahera Targaryen, we learned it's actually a murder, not a suicide. Very in passing. It's not really confirmed, but it's confirmed. It was probably Unwin Peak. But I just see like a likely blood and cheese kind of parallel coming soon with the sand snakes and Tom and Marcella. And now this is making me think like if the sap does blow up, maybe that's how the Tyrells go, but maybe there's something else for Marjorie. I don't know. Yeah. I could see like, and we, the readers would be like, that seems weird for Marjorie to do that. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And as you said, like Jahara Targaryen. That's what, what it really makes me think about. Yeah. Well, Cersei, after the sex and after all of the blood is cleaned up, is like, well, this was bullshit and stupid. We shouldn't have done it. And Jamie's like, if the Targaryens do it, why couldn't we? And then he says, 
Stand up before the realm and say it's me you want. We'll have our own wedding feast and make another son in place of Joffrey. Ha, 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 but Cersei finds that unfunny. And Jamie's like, I didn't intend it to be funny. She says Tommen's throne comes from Robert. And Jamie's like, well, he can have Casterly Rock. They should just let Dad sit the throne instead. All I want is you. Oh, Jamie. Yeah, and it seems like this is another thing where Cersei, what, is she just being reduced to her body again? And that's why Cersei thinks that's, like, the only thing she is in many ways, other than the part where she also thinks she's Sywin's daughter. But anyways, like, does Cersei even want to have more kids? No. Probably not. She's, like, already had three, three, and then, like, she had that abortion before, but... Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, to you know, be she honest, she's already like, this is already too much. Yeah, and Jamie comes in, and we have something that's very much like marital rape in this moment, and he's just like, yeah, I want another kid. And Cersei's is like, no, I don't want another kid. Anyway, that, and, and also a side note, right, of something that bothers me about how this all goes down, because Cersei knows how it works, right? She lays it all very clearly, and it's different from how it's in the show, because Cersei's like... Why Why would we bother having another kid? Tom and throne derives from Robert. That's like the whole fucking point. And I don't know that Cersei will take the throne in the books, same as in the show. Maybe she, maybe she will, but it, maybe it won't be quite like that if she does. She'll know much more explicitly, like, this is a coup of, like, moving it to Lannister power because it's not derived from the Baratheons anymore. Yeah, it would absolutely be a big, crazy deal. And I guess the small folk wouldn't really... I mean, what would they say, right, in the end? What would they say? But I don't know. Uh, it's something that I'm actually uh, almost finished writing an essay about. So maybe we'll talk about it in the future. But I think that in the show, they didn't, they kind of cut off their chickens before they hatched them, right? Uh, Dorne got pretty killed off pretty fast. But, but a handful of the Dorn players are going to King's Landing, and they are the handful that are very, very much so consumed with vengeance. And I think that Dornish secession is going to play a huge role in the show. We don't really remember it because Marcella gets sent off and her death in season five, you know, happens so abruptly. But I mean, Marcella is one year older than Tom and, and who's not hmm. to say that we'll get Marcella possibly being put forth as a claimant before a Dornish coup. Uh, absolutely. I mean, she has to be crowned at some point. Yeah, gold shall be their shrouds. Out. Yeah. He tries to touch Cersei's cheek, but instinctively uses his right hand, and Cersei shies away from Jamie's stump. She says he's scaring her, and backs away from him, asking what they've done to him and why he's acting like this. He says they cut off his hand, but she says that he has changed. I agree, Cersei, for the better. She tells him that they'll talk tomorrow, but that she has Sansa Stark's maids in a tower cell to be questioned and tells him to go see their father, which again, there you have it. She's telling him, I'm busy. I have to go concoct some sort of story to imprison our brother forever, you know? Pretty much. And Jimmy just goes, I crossed a thousand leagues to come to you and lost the best part of me along the way. Don't tell me to leave. Leave me. She repeated, turning away. Hmm. It, yes, their relationship's fucked up, but this does make me yeah. sad for him. Little lost golden retriever puppy. He don't know where he is. Yeah, I mean, like, it's fucked up, right? Like, the what happened in the scene, but also Cersei is yeah. pretty bad 
to Jamie as well, and abusive to him as well. And yeah, I mean, debatably, the worst part of Jamie was what was lost along the way, but he doesn't know that yet. <sighs> yeah. Tywin's guards let Jamie in, saying the gods are good to give Jamie back. And Jamie's like, nope, Catelyn, Stark, and Roose Bolton actually are good to have given me back. And he climbs the stairs, finding his father without, thankfully. Tywin's alone in his solar, which is good because he didn't want to show everyone his missing hand yet. Tywin's like, you're late. Jamie's like, yes. Heard it was quite a party, though, by Dothraki standards. But actually it wasn't. It wasn't at all. I inserted the line, but also there's only one death. Not nearly exciting enough for the Dothraki. Anyway, Tywin had apparently sent people to look for Jamie, but not too many people so that we could keep it on the down low. And Jamie's like, but did Varys know this? That I'm missing a hand? And no. And then everyone, including Tywin again, they just all assume it was Catelyn Stark for some reason. And Jamie's like, no, there's a twist. It's the goat. It's your goat. <laughs> really got my goat. <laughs> yeah. And Tywin's like, well, you know what? And Gregor Clegane took the castle and Vargo Hote is having a very bad time with an infected ear wound. And Jamie's like, ooh, very interesting. I'm very excited to share this with Brienne. And Brienne, the people just love telling her gossip. And Brienne's like, I do not care. What am I going to do with this? Especially right now. She's like, I really don't care right now. Do not yeah. care. Jamie is like, so is Vargo Hote dead yet? And it turns out Hote's feet and hands have been cut off. And the other brave companions are dead if they did not leave already. Tywin is swearing vengeance on the leftovers. Yeah, the companions who left. And it's fascinating to me, right, that this happened even though they didn't know that Hote had cut off Jamie's hand yet. Just coincidentally, people have been cutting off Vargo Hote's feet and hands. Later on, they cut off even more and start feeding it to him. But whatever, we'll get there. We'll get there. I, I... is there a medical reason why the hands and feet were cut off for infections? Like, would it have spread to, like, those extremities first? I don't know. Probably not. I, like Jamie Lannister, am not a doctor. It also goes to show that, like, when Roose sent Kyburn away with Jamie, though, he did something that actually took a very necessary and valuable asset from Hote's lordship by removing the maester who mm-hmm. can tend to things like infections like he did with Jamie's, obviously. And he actually did that a lot, right? Like, Kyburn was essential because he's like, I don't know, the Brave Companions were always up to, like, some weird shit, right? They were always cutting things off. I had to, like, deal with a lot of infections and things. And now he's not there. And then you have, like, Tywin here. It's interesting. Then you think about places like Greywater Watch, which, yes, they don't have quite the volume or foot traffic of people, but they survive without a maester, anti-vaxxers, and um, <laughs> homeschooled anti-vaxxers. Uh, but, like, they survive without a maester somehow. And you think of, like, how Jojen definitely had Greywater fever. So it's interesting. Like, taking that away from Hote, he's not really, like, a real, especially of a big, huge building like that. Yeah. Not a real lord at all. And, I mean, he didn't have, like, a real maester in a way, too. But Kyburn. It didn't matter that he wasn't, like, really a maester, right? He knew his shit. He studied. And then also you have, like, here now Tywin swearing vengeance. He's pretty angry, right, at Vargo Hote and the Companions. And he's actually acting exactly the way that Jamie thinks that Jamie should have been acting towards Joffrey's death and murderers. So, 
<laughs> weird dad things, maybe. Yeah, anyway, maybe. Jamie lies and he's like, yeah, I can totally still use my other hand. Of course, I totally... I'm fine. I'm fine. And Simon's like, good, because gift giving is my le- love language. And boy, do I have something to give you. <laughs> Jamie's like, my love language is quality time. So how about you tell me a story, dad, about how Joffrey died? And so he does. Allegedly, Tyrion did it with a bazillion people looking on, which doesn't really sound his style. Pretty foolish, Jamie thinks. Podrick and Sansa's maids are taken into custody. The gold cloaks are searching for Sansa. Jamie thinks it's interesting that Tywin threatens to give the kings justice. And also, uh, Tywin would kill his own son? Question mark? Like, Tywin's like, well, yeah, evidence, duh. I mean, if Tyrion did it, he did it, but damn. Yeah, and Jamie's like very sure he's like, I don't think Tyrion did it. You know, like, he's just very clearly like, I don't know about that. And everyone else in his family is very sure that Tyrion did it. And they are very like gung-ho about kinslaying they're like jamie kingslaying might be your thing and you know what you've already done this one unforgivable sin what if you just like did another one you know what if what if you just like on top of the incest and (laughs) breaking your vows what if you just did one more thing and like killed your brother just one more Ugh. yeah yeah and jamie's like i don't know i don't know dog i don't really be People think it'd be like it do, but it don't, you know? What is, like, it's the one that breaks your back. The one straw, you know? This is the one kinslaying that just... Yeah, there's that, and he's also like, I just, like, don't know that Tyrion did it. He's trying to be like, for example, Stannis. He actually he actually literally points to the example of Stannis. He's like, you know, everyone thinks Brienne did it, but I don't. Slipping, <laughs> slipping some Brienne into this conversation, right? And he's, like, defending her against Tywin's accusations as the hero who got him here. He's like, okay, whatever. Tywin's like, How I'm dare you shit. make fun of my girlfriend, Dad? <laughs> he's like, I don't even know. He's basically also like, who? <laughs> her? Then he's like, okay, Jamie, are you sure you can be a Kingsguard without a hand? And it turns out he's not asking because he doubts Jamie's ability, it's more because Cersei's now open precedent for the Kingsguard to not serve for life. Tywin turns around and he basically says to Jamie, Eliana, would you like to quote? Yeah, he says, So those are your gifts for me, sweet Sansa. Oh my god. Harry the Arian Winterfell. That's worth another kiss, don't you think? I don't. Chloe's so mad. Tywin, okay. Tywin actually says, so those are your gifts from me, my sweet Jamie. Casterly Rock, Tommen, and Marjorie Tyrell. That's worth another kiss now, don't you think? That's better. That's... I don't know about better, but I mean, yeah. it's better. <laughs> he, oh. he also means to wed Cersei to Oberyn. This is actually not the quote, you guys. Obviously, I'm not reading aloud that quote. We're reading aloud this quote instead. No! Jamie had heard all he could stand. No, more than he could stand. He was sick of it, sick of lords and lies, sick of his father, his sister, sick of the whole bloody business. No, 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 no. How many times must I say no before you'll hear it? Oberyn Martell? The man's infamous, and not just for poisoning his sword. He has more bastards than Robert, and bets with boys as well. And if you think for one misbegotten moment I would wed Joffrey's widow... 
Lord Tyrell swears the girl's still a maiden. She can die a maiden, as far as I'm concerned. I don't want her, and I don't want your rock. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to wed him to. I mean, obviously Tywin doesn't know, but he must know. There's, I don't know how yeah. Tywin wouldn't know, but like wedding Jamie to like his son's widow. I mean, it's even in- for Jamie, that's a little too inbred. Yeah, it's an interesting. It's it's not it's not a great move. No, it's a. And I mean, that's the thing is like Tywin refuses to admit it to himself, right? Like we know Tywin has to know. He'll never admit it because also a pride because you know a lion of the rock, but he can't admit it because then he can he'd have to admit he fails. Tywin can't admit he fails. I mean, he can't admit it for the same reason. Turns out it's like what. 20 years later, and Tywin still hasn't admitted, like, hey, maybe my son Jamie is a Kingsguard and, like, <laughs> can't inherit Casterly Rock, which is what Jamie's saying. He's like, I have a job. I'm gonna do my job. And Tywin's like, what? They have, like, this heavy silence, and then Jamie tries to say father. Yeah, and we get this line from Tywin, and it's not the first time that uh, Tywin has been dad of the year today, or ever. <laughs> You are not my son. Lord Tywin turned his face away. You say you are the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard and only that. Very well, sir. Go do your duty. So the chapter with the father, son, and like the Lannisters and the No and the, of all of the things comes full circle. And the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> wow. Damn, Tywin, you really don't have a strong supply of kin that actually like you. So, like, what if you cooled it? Like, quantity of sons Tywin has. Two. Quantity of sons Tywin would not give a fuck if they died. Also, two. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, he has three kids, and I, he also would not give a fuck if all three of them died, it seems. Burn your he legacy down, you know? He, he wouldn't the extent that, like, he's like, shit, who else am I going to order around now? Right? But yeah. not like he really cares about them. Yeah. There's also something here at the end ringing with the go on, do your duty that Tywin gives to Jamie of just, you know, what is his duty now? He spent this whole entire trip trying to get back and he finally gets back. And like we said, it is destroyed. It's nothing like it was supposed to be. Uh, all that glitters is not gold here for the Lannister crew at all. And I feel like from here on out, Jamie's depiction of his duty changes, right? Because as a Kingsguard member, he was deeply conflicted. You might remember from, mm-hmm. you know, the past, like when he killed his king, who was going to light the city on fire. I'm not saying anything about Jamie. I'm just saying it is kind of the one thing he's not supposed to do. So just kind of funny to me. I think it's, you know, it's impeccably. I am. Um, you're right. Like, because th- them saying, like, Absolutely, because he's like, all right, now you want to fucking do your duty. <laughs> Tywin's saying, because I guess maybe he thought that maybe Tywin completely misunderstood Jamie killing Ares. Like, mm-hmm. this is like me highly speculating, and we don't really have text that backs this up. But could Tywin have misinterpreted Jamie killing Ares as like, oh yeah, my son's still loyal to me, and that's why he killed Ares, yeah. as opposed to like, Ares was going to blow up the whole fucking city, and it was the right thing to do. And 
to an extent, I do think the loyalty is a big play into that. And I think it was big for Jamie. It was obviously stop Ares from blowing the city up. That is what triggered this entire thing. Like this catalyst was that. But also the fact that he was like, bring me your dad's head. And this was the one moment that Jamie was like, "There's this was Jamie's no chance and no choice. Right, like Jamie's not on a yeah. hero's journey per se anymore because he already had a really big hero moment. He's an ex-hero that no, he's an anti-hero. No one admits he's a hero, but he did the heroic thing already, and he's still waiting for people to go. You are the hero, Jamie. Um, and Jamie slaying the dragon, so to speak, yeah. is such a big like. I slayed the dragon. I saved my family, and it's just like Tyrion, right? All Tyrion's ever wanted is for his dad to look at him and say hey son thanks for doing a good job that's all Tyrion needed to hear for like years years of this shit to be undone and Jamie, it's the same thing too like it's never enough it's never enough for Tywin Lannister who shits gold and it never has been and Jamie's learning in this chapter it never can be or will be yeah he his father has literally unrealistic expectations. Like Jamie took an oath in front of everyone. And it's like what? You he's already done this one bad thing. You think he's gonna just go like break his oaths a second time? Jamie's like, no, I got a chance to actually fucking maybe do it this time, do it right. I think a lot of that in that oath breaking concept, it runs so parallel to what we see with John right now, right? Like John just came back from from his trip beyond the wall. And he just came back and chose to come back to his penal colony. And we see John's oaths in comparison kind of to Jamie's here. Yeah, and, you know, people telling him, you know, do your duty. And there's like, as you said, there's that snark behind it for Jamie of like, oh, now you want to fucking do it. And for John, it's kind of the same, especially as people question later on, the same as they question Jamie's yeah, I mean, his oath was protect the king, whatever. But same as people question that for Jamie, where John's like, you know, what if we attacked Winterfell later on? <laughs> what, <laughs> what if, if we if? did that? What if we let a whole ranging south with a bunch of wildlings on the other side of the wall? And everyone's like, oh, John, hang on, that's not your duty, is it? Nope. It's actually not his duty. It's someone's duty, as you and Shelley pointed out. It's just yeah. not John's. It's not. And I mean, like, I guess that was the thing, right? For Jamie, it had to be him because of timing. But that's what Ned kind of says to Jamie, right? Like, yeah, someone had to do it, but it's not supposed to be you. Yeah, I think that's uh, something we'll explore as stuff gets back to business over the next few chapters, eh? I am excited for the next chapter. That's one, like I said at the top of the app. That's going to be a fun one. That's one of my favorite Jamie chapters. I I just think there's so much good, fun, internal stuff for him to work through. And him in new environments with new people is especially what I'm excited for. Because yes, we already know Cersei and Tywin is toxic mama drama. But new faces with Jamie is always fun for me. I like getting to hear how he actually ticks, not just the Lannister side of him. We've had him with Steel Shanks. Yeah, <laughs> with Brienne, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I think we did it, gang. I think we hit through Jamie 7 in A Storm of Swords, our 86th A Song of Ice and Fire episode. 
Damn. I know, right? Holy shit. How'd we get here? Anyway. We should start back. Wow. (laughs) Thanks for listening, you guys. Make sure you're subscribed to us on a podcast platform near you, like Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, you name it, we're there. Yeah, and if you want to get notified other than uh, subscribing there about when new episodes come out, or maybe like you want to send us something, you can find us on social media at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, or you can shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Maybe you would like to correct uh, my attribution of credit. <laughs> sorry, Brian! <laughs> you should be. Uh- I am sorry. We do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Huge shout out to our patrons who keep us uh, a podcast for the people, by the people. I like to say we do special episodes for our $5 and up patrons every month. This month we are covering Once Upon a Time in the North from His Dark Materials, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And as always, I have been Chloe. And I have been Eliana. Goodbye, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.